Are you good at reconciling with those who have sinned against you? And I'm not talking about a reconciliation that just seeks to pacify. That's peace-faking, not peacemaking. I'm not talking about a reconciliation that seeks to prove that you are right and that the other person is wrong. That's not peacemaking. That's actually fighting for your own self-righteousness. I'm talking about when you are sinned against and maybe even your blood is boiling. You feel so offended. Are you good at seeking the good of the one that offended you? Seeing their condition and recognizing that something is wrong and then out of a good and a pure love that the presence of their sin draws you towards the situation in order that you can help that person be free from what shackles them to sin and then enjoy all that could be between them and God and even between you and them. Well, in our passage today, we see God's good, God's pure love in action as he seeks to dwell with those who have sinned against him. We see his pure and good love in action as he seeks to dwell with those who have sinned against him. This is what our passage addresses this morning in Exodus chapters 25 to 31. You can go ahead and turn there with me right now. This is found on page 65 of the Bibles right in front of you if you're using one of those black Bibles. Page 65, Exodus 25 to 31. Technically, we'll be, we'll be looking a little bit at 412, 4, uh, sorry, 2412, all the way to the end of chapter 31. <clears throat> but, but in relation to God wanting to dwell amongst a sinful people and seek reconciliation with them, we know that according to Scripture, there's a problem. If His people are to meet with God, the holy God, then they too must be holy. They too must be holy. It's, it's one thing that, that should make us sing when we are singing, but behold your God, behold our God. That's one thing that should make something sit so uncomfortably with us. How is it that we can come and behold God? Or that God can, in fact, come and dwell amongst His people? It's because there's this great chasm between the holy and the unholy. Our points today, number one, is that God desires to dwell with His people. God desires to dwell with His people. And then number two, if they are to dwell with God, then they too must be holy. If they are to dwell with God, then they too must be holy. So then the question is, what is it that man can do to get back into fellowship with God? Because the Bible says that man created the problem. They were the ones who worked themselves into the mess to begin with. So how exactly does man go about undoing the mess to get back in fellowship with God. You know, this is the, one of the issues, an issue, brought up in all of Scripture. And we see it first brought up in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible. And that question is, how, how can man get in fellowship with God, unholy, get in fellowship with the holy? That's something that the rest of Scripture seeks to answer. And it's a question that we ourselves should seek to answer. In, one, in God's one plan of redemption, we see this whole thing is leading up to Jesus Christ, the God-man, to bridge the, that great chasm between the holy and the unholy. Let me summarize the early portions of Scripture to give some needed background for those of you who might be visiting with us for the first time. Uh, God had, there in Genesis, God is 
is the creator of everything. He speaks and the world is created and even uh, men and women are created in his likeness, designed to be in fellowship with him. So just think of any good and perfect father and mother desires to be in relationship with uh, their son or daughter. So it is with God. I mean, we as fathers and mothers are made in the image of God. Well, but as a sovereign king creates the world, man was the crown of his creation. There in the garden, man and God were to walk amongst one another. They were to have fellowship with one another. It's man living underneath God's good and perfect rule and supposed to love it. But, in fact, things take a turn for the worse. Adam and Eve, they choose to sin against God. They seek to live out from God's good and perfect authority. And so, become they become gods unto themselves. They become their own gods, and thus they sinned and rebelled against their maker. In their sin, they earned for themselves God's just judgment. This is treason against the only king, and God judges them. He says, from dusk you came, then to dust you shall return. And then the Bible goes on to say that sin and death entered into the world, and now men, in fact, are born sinners. For Adam and Eve, because they would not stand to have God as their king, they are cast out of the presence of God where God dwelled amongst them. And then they go on and carry around the curse of death. And so the question then becomes, how would an unholy people get in fellowship with an all-holy God, a sinless God, an all-righteous God? How would they become at one? The two that are hostile, how would they become at one? And Genesis unfolds this story. By God's grace, he pursues those who have sinned against him. Where we might sort of throw the pity party and fuss and complain that someone has sinned against us, God in his good and all perfect love chooses to make it right. He sees the problem. He sees how sin has tripped us up and so makes to, seeks to make it right. And he makes promises towards Abraham. He wants to develop them into a holy nation where they are unholy. And then uh, at the beginning of Exodus, we know at the end of Genesis, beginning of Exodus, we know that Israel has blossomed, the people of Israel, that is Abraham's descendants. 400 years after being in slavery, God then moves to deliver his people. That's the first 18 chapters of Exodus. God then brings plagues against Pharaoh and Egypt and through divine rescue, all of Israel escaped through the Red Sea. And in an act of judgment, Pharaoh and his mighty chariots are brought to nothing. Turn over to Exodus chapter 19, a few, few chapters to the left. <clears throat> and we see why exactly that God is doing this. His unholy people have wandered away from him. But yet God in his determination, his good and pure love, is seeking to refine his very people. And this is what it says there in 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. There, think relationship. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So you see there what he's doing there? God, God is choosing these people to be his treasured possession. Think of like the, the crown jewels of the king and the queen designed his people to be a kingdom of priests that is representatives of God to the world, a nation that displays his character, a holy nation. So Exodus 1 to 18 is all about God delivering his people. Chapters 19 to 40 speak of God helping his people live as a holy people to reflect his character. 
We see there in chapter 20, you have the, the Ten Commandments. You have God helping His people know, well, how exactly are we to live? And then in our chapters today, and actually in um, basically our chapters from now until the end of the book, we see that God is calling them to prepare for His coming. God is calling them to prepare for His coming. So all that is summary. I think a helpful summary, since we've not been in this book for the last couple weeks. With that summary in mind, let's jump into point number one. God desires to dwell with His people. God desires to dwell with His people. Um, now, as many of you guys know, I encourage folks to read the passage of Scripture that's going to be preached on the upcoming week. And so maybe there was some of you uh, who had actually read the chapter. And maybe some of you guys, even if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you might think, like, how exactly is this passage about God desiring to dwell with his people? I mean, you just look at the section headings in your guys' Bible, right? As God gives instructions to his people on what to build and what even to wear, this feels almost like a Macy's catalog to a dude who doesn't care about furniture and fashion. This reads like a furniture catalog. I mean, just look, just look there. We're not going to read through the whole, the whole section, obviously. This is seven chapters, a little bit more than that. But you just look there, and, and it speaks a lot about furniture and fashion. You have the Ark of the Covenant in 2510. The Ark of the Covenant, uh, by the way, was uh, this, um, basically a box or a chest that eventually would come to house the Ten Commandments. So that's the first piece of furniture. You, you can move on. You have a table for bread. You have a golden lampstand. You have the tabernacle, uh, which was the tent, uh, basically a portable tent of worship for the Israelites. Now, some of you guys are already tempted to check out. Please do not check out. You, you go on here. You got the bronze altar. You got the court of the tabernacle. You got the oil for the lamp, and then it moves to sort of priests and their fashion. You got the priest's garment in twenty-eight. You got twenty-nine, the consecration of those very priests as they're set apart for God. You got incense. You got a bronze basin in chapter thirty. You got the anointing oil and how exactly to make it. In thirty-one, you got people given unique skill to build all these things, and then in verse twelve of chapter thirty-one, you begin a little section on the Sabbath rest. So, if you've been reading that these sections, I can understand how you see that this is basically a furniture fashion catalog. But here we need to see what comes before all of this to see what's going on. This is a big picture summary of these, of these verses, okay, of these chapters. So go ahead and look at chapter 25, and I'll read verses 1 to 9. The Lord said to Moses, and here Moses, God had called up Moses to meet with him on Mount Sinai, and God is revealing these things to him. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution, from every man whose heart moves from him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the land, spices, and anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece, those, those clothing. And look at this, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and of all this furniture, so you shall make it. But verse 8 is the highlight right there. And let them make me a sanctuary, a meeting place, that I may dwell in their midst. Once again here you see God's desire to meet with a people. And here he's commanding them to be this, to, to make this sanctuary or this tabernacle, 
Again, this was a, a portable tent of worship where uh, the Israelites could unpack, build, and then anytime they needed to set off, you know, they were a nomadic people, then they were to fold everything up and then be on the move again and then be carrying the objects, the, the furniture there. And um, in short, we won't get into too much detail, but there were three different sections of this tabernacle. There was the place where God came down, the Holy of Holies. There was then the Holy Place. And then the bigger section was the Court of the Tabernacle. So you had the Holy of Holies, also called the Most Holy Place. Then you had the Holy Place. And then the bigger section was the Court of the Tabernacle. It was a portable tent of worship. Now for us today... It's easy to forget or even disregard the significance of the tabernacle. Number one, Christians don't worship in temples today. This is not a sanctuary. This is just called a main hall. We are not, the, I mean, uh, this place, this building is not the church. So we can go out and meet on Galemont, just a bunch of us gathering together, and we are the church. Churches are dependent upon buildings. So Christians don't worship in temples today. Second, the passage was to God's people who lived thousands of years ago. So already you might be wondering, like, what in the world does this have to do with us? We'll get to that. And then number three, uh, this thing, just to many of us, just seems like a structure. That's all it is. It's just a structure that God tells the people to build. Do you ever think like that? As you think about the Old Testament? Think, ah, oh, the Old Testament is just a bunch of irrelevant stories. And here, even furniture and fashion, like, already you might want to poke yourself in the eye. <clears throat> but I want you guys to banish those thoughts from your mind. Just banish them. From your mind. The tabernacle is so much more than a structure. This is God drawing near to his people. I mean, for one, it resembled a royal residence. I mean, what kind of material is fit for a king? You think gold. You think silver. You think bronze. All this, this, these pure metals of value. And these Israelites were a nomadic people, right? So when God tells his people to build a tent filled with all of these precious metals... And then even decorated with the colors of purple, blue, and red. We understand that the, that the tabernacle signifies that this is God's authority amongst all of his people. This is the king coming to dwell with his kingdom of priests. Not only is this a royal palace, uh, this is where God meets with his people. This was a meeting place where his glory would be manifested and where it would come down. If you look there in 2412... You see already what is going on as God calls up Moses onto Mount Sinai to meet with him. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I might give you the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. <clears throat> you look there at verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord. Now that's key there. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. So you see what's going on here. God was meeting with the one mediator, Moses, as he stood on behalf of all of the people. God was meeting with him as the people's representative. Look there at 24.9. You have a good summary of what happens in the presence of God. And then Moses, Aaron, and Nabed, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up. They saw the God of Israel. Just think, continue to think holy, unholy. How does that happen? How does that work? There was under his feet... As if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like it is heaven come down, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and then they had like this fellowship meal between the holy and the unholy. As God gives his people a tabernacle, God desires to have his glory and his presence 
go with them wherever God would lead them. Lead them. His authority guiding them, present with them. And this is God's desire to dwell with his people. Men are sinful, but yet God desires to bring his holy presence among them. It is a move to bring things back to the way they were in the very beginning. All of God's instruction of the Israelite furniture and fashion... All of this stuff that speaks about his meeting is an effort to bring things back to the very beginning. Where God's people were to live in God's place, submitting to God's righteous rule, experiencing God's blessings, that is, fellowship with him. I mean, that's why you hear, if you were to read these, read the entire chapters uh, today in, in the afternoon, uh, you will hear an echo of Genesis chapters 1 to 3. In the creation of the universe and his people, Genesis 1 notes seven times, and God said. Here too, in our chapters, in these chapters, 25 to 31, God continues to form his holy people. And what is he doing? It says there seven times, and the Lord said. If you think back to what happens after the judgment of Adam and Eve, what does God do after he casts them out of the garden? Well, he puts this heavenly creature, the cherubim, this winged heavenly being, there as a barrier between the holy and the unholy, signifying that if you must go to fellowship with God, you must go, uh, you must go through these heavenly beings, and it is, it is impossible here. So then in Genesis 3, and then in our chapters, both speak of the presence of cherubim, the winged heavenly creature, these things that minister to God. There, It's also spoken of in our chapter. And so if you were to enter into the holy places, the, the holy of holies, what was on the veil? So right, you had the first section, the most holy place, and then you had the holy of holies. Sorry, you had the holy place. What separated the two, what got you into the very place that met with God, what you had to go through a veil, on the veil was two embroidered cherubim. Think about the Sabbath, right? We can go on. Genesis chapter 1, after creating, what does God do? He rests. So here in our chapters, after the seven words that the Lord speaks, God commands his people to rest. You can think about the fall. You know, unfortunately, we see a, a parallel even here. Despite God's self-disclosure, despite his presence and the perfect relationship there that they experienced, the people, Adam and Eve, chose to sin against him. Well, here too, you have the seven words. You have the cherubim. You have even a fall. We know immediately after these chapters, the people get fed up. If you look over to chapter 32, at the end, immediately after, God discloses himself and says, Look, I want to meet with you. Right after he'd given them the Ten Commandments, you have the Israelites sinning against him. We learn so much about God here in this move to go back to the way things were, a state of perfection where there was no sin. What man had done, God here is seeking to undo what Adam had done. And God yet, even though the people are simple, he desires to dwell amongst them. It is his desire. You see how different God is from us? I mean, just think about the last time that you were offended by somebody. How your blood was boiling. How you did not want to approach the situation. You didn't even want to be in the same room with that person. And in fact, even though they sinned against you, you wanted to wipe their presence from the face of the earth. You were so angry, whether it be you had murderous thoughts to whether you wanted to give somebody the silent treatment, as uh, Ken Sandy, an author, minister, he says that giving the silent treatment is basically 
in effective murder. You wipe them off the face of the planet, even if you wouldn't do that physically. I mean, that's, that's our desires, our unholy, sinful desires. But that is not God's desire. He doesn't reside in the heavenlies throwing himself a little pity party, just waiting. Oh no, you guys, you guys must initiate first before I am to go towards you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't remain silent. Instead, he seeks the sinners out. He notices sin, and in his good and pure love, he moves forward to us, wanting the best that there ever could be in him. This is a desire to see people purified. This is a holy love. Loving sinners with the goal of seeing them to love the holy and delight in all that is good, to delight delight in all that is righteous and holy, which is God himself. Can you imagine a king like that? A king who has absolute, there are no questionable motives at all. If he says that he wants to do something good, you, you never need to question. This is, this is a ruler, a king whose, whose love never serves any selfish desires. It's so different than the kings and rulers and the politicians of today. You know, some of you guys, maybe you watch the presidential, the, the, the presidential debate. And many people wonder, like, why exactly are people crafting lies? Are they just saying things simply so that they might be able to benefit for their very own selves? I mean, do they genuinely desire the good, pure love of everybody here in America? This is a ruler unlike one that we have known. And when God sets his holy love upon a wayward sinners like ourselves, he desires us to come to love the very things that he loves. Holy things, good and righteous things. And you know where we see this movement towards sinners most clearly? God desiring to be with his people? It's not in any man-made sanctuary. It's not in a tabernacle or even the temple. First it was a tabernacle, then eventually Israel built the temple. No, it is in Jesus Christ. So it's no accident that in the coming of Christ, John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. There, the, John the author, God himself, wants us to go back to the Exodus... And to see what God had done amongst them. God had tabernacled among them. And here in John, in Jesus Christ, God the Holy One tabernacles, or literally takes up residence, dwells among us. Remember that glory that we saw earlier on Mount Sinai? The glory that would come down upon the tabernacle. What does John 1.14 continue to say? And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Christ, we have God seeking to dwell amongst sinners. We have revelation of God. We have God's ultimate self-disclosure. In Christ the Son, God sets His love upon a people. He takes up residence with His people to walk amongst them, leading them, guiding them, and being present with them. Friends, I wonder if, you know, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, you don't follow Jesus, I wonder if you recognize that this God is wholly unlike us. Even in seeking to reconcile himself to sinners, he is wholly unlike us. You recognize that God stands ready at every moment, as long as we are hearing the gospel preached, he stands ready to receive us, sinners, who would turn away from our sins. The only way that I think that... uh, 
not the only way, but certainly one way in which we come to understand this is by looking at the family. You see, if children are in rebellion against their parents, the parents certainly must carry out some sort of discipline. There, there must be something done. But parents stand ready, the good and perfect parent, as if there was one, but here we are made in the image of God. So our fatherhood, motherhood, is look like God's fatherhood. We stand ready to receive children back, don't we? And even where, where they, we, they might see them going astray, yet parents oftentimes, <clears throat> you're going to hear later on in the testimony, parents stand ready to minister to children who are wayward. This happened in my life. As I was uh, doing all sorts of things, living a carnal lifestyle, had rejected God and rebelled against God in that period of time, but yet my parents were there, and as I'm sure many of yours were too at times. Well, God does that all the time. Always ready to seek out reconciliation, to desire people to turn from their sins and enjoy what they were made for. Relationship with God, number one, relationship in the family, which represents relationship with God. But something here, once again, should not sit right with us. How can a holy God dwell among a, an unholy people? I mean, what makes that possible, really? What makes that possible? This brings us to point number two. If they are to dwell with God, they too must be holy. Point number two. If they are to dwell with God, they too must be holy. There is a world of difference between the holy and the unholy. Keep in mind, it doesn't only boil down to what a person does or does not do. That's not really holiness here, at least the sum of it. It certainly includes that, but fundamentally it involves who a person is. So think about the analogy of a tree and a fruit, right? If you cultivate a tree, and right now, you know, the young home, we're growing tomato plants, mainly one of our daughters is doing this. And, uh, you know, if the plant continues to bear bad fruit... I mean, wouldn't we be foolish if we just kept on saying, oh yeah, the fruit's bad, never mind, and still tend to the plant? At some point in time, we ought to think, like, maybe it's the entire plant that's bad, and that's why it's bearing bad fruit. So you see that as sinners, the root is bad, and thereby we bear bad fruit. You think about God, then. Imagine God's holiness and all the implications of His root being absolute purity, holiness, it means then that everything he does, all of the fruit that comes from the root, is informed by his perfect love, his perfect grace, his perfect justice, his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. But see, that's a problem for sinners. That's a problem for sinners. Because if this holy God is to arrive upon an unholy people, you have the aspect of justice. What is judgment? What does justice do as, an, as a holy God arrives upon an unholy people? I mean, how does he stand his presence, the presence of evil? We're going to continue to see how exactly this is made, but as we look here at this point here, this people must be holy. These chapters, in these chapters, as God is drawing near to his people, he's asking them to prepare for his coming. For the coming of the Holy King. This is one way in which he's readying the people for the unholy people, for his holy arrival. And that's exactly what this, uh, many of these uh, seven chapters underscore. His meeting place must be consecrated and set apart, and so must his people. Let's look at the meeting place here. We see that God's dwelling place must be distinct. God's dwelling place must be distinct. And by the way, when I say dwelling place, I don't mean that God is confined to the tabernacle. 
God dwells in the heavens, it says, but yet he's going to make himself known here in the tabernacle. But while the, but the, while the layout communicated the dwelling place, as we've already looked at, it also communicated this distinction between unholy and holy. That's what he's teaching the people. And he wants us to appreciate that. In all of the details, he wants us to appreciate the distinction between the unholy and the holy. Again, think of the tabernacle broken up into three main ideas. If you were to enter into the main entrance, you have the large court, and then you have, once again, the holy place, and then the most holy place. In that, there is distinction. Not everybody can go into the most holy place. Only one person, one time a year, could go into that most holy place. See that there's a separation being drawn there. There's a separation between the common and then the uncommon. Where he dwells, only he chooses whom he will meet with. Not only is the layout of the tabernacle drawing this distinction between unholy and holy, so are the materials. So you think, right, on the, on the outermost court, the most common area, you have bronze. But as you move closer into the, ho- the most holy places, you have pure gold used of certain things there. And all this is conveying the fact that God is set apart. And his people are to remember this. Not only was the furniture distinct or set apart, but so were those who ministered on behalf of Israel. The priests here were to be set apart. They were of the tribe of Levi, Aaron and his sons. By God's divine uh, plan, they were the ones who had unique privilege of ministering in the tabernacle. And only only Aaron, the high priest, could go in, as I said, once a year, where God would come down upon the Ark of the Covenant, the, the chest that held the Ten Commandments. But, and there is this unique aspect or this, this understanding amongst the priests that the, everything that they were to do, they were to do before the Lord. Now, that's one thing I want to draw here. Look at 2720. 27.20. All of their duties, they're supposed to do before the Lord. Now, keep in mind Eden here. When God created all things, that's what Adam and Eve were to do. There, God tells Moses to make sure that the oil for the lamps were always lit. There's no, no real symbolic meaning there. They're supposed to be always lit so people can, can see. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. Uh, regarding the priests and special garments, the high priest was to have two stones on his clothing, on his upper garment. One of the stones were be to, was to be the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, or, or both of the stones were to bear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there it says, And Aaron shall bear the names before the Lord. Uh, you can continue on. Look there at verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on his breastpiece of judgment, on his heart, when he goes into the holy place, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Look there at 35. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. He's talking um, Speaking still about the clothing, and its sound shall be heard. He's talking about these little bells. Should be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. You can look there at 29.11. Then you shall kill the bull. This talking about sacrifice before the Lord. We can go on and on and on here about how all the people were to be doing things before the Lord. Think holy priests representing a holy people. You know, for Christians, while we don't minister within the veil... We don't minister in the priesthood. The Bible does, though, say that all that we do is to be done before the Lord. You know, while, while here God is seeking to 
recreate his people holy unto his name. So we as Christians are to do everything to the praise of God's glorious grace. Listen to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not just the sacrifices that they're going to do here that we're going to look at in Exodus. But he said, present your whole entire bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's not talking about killing ourselves. He's just talking about everything we are, we do to the glory of God. And so Aaron was to do the same. They were to be set apart. Now, uh, of course, Israel was, as they were to do this, these things did not make them holy. God was still teaching the people to honor his holiness. The main problem was not having the wrong furniture. The main problem was not wearing the wrong clothing. But the main problem was that they had a sinful heart. Adam and Eve once again rebelled against God, and they earned for themselves God's just judgment. But get this, folks, okay? Let's back up a little bit. This is where God's plan for his holy meeting place and God's holy priests come together. He's asking his people to build this structure and he's setting apart a special people on behalf of all of Israel in order that Israel might have a laser beam focus of what was needed for a holy God to dwell with an unholy people. So you see, all of this, all the plans are coming together now, right? If you were a regular Israelite, you knew who the high priest was. That was Aaron. And you looked to him to enter into the most holy place. And then not only, I mean, if you were the great high priest, sorry, if you were the high priest, if you were ministering on behalf of all of Israel, you would walk through the court and then eventually you would see an altar of sacrifice. Now just imagine that. I mean, why do you think God, if you could step, in, step into the architectural mind of God, why do you think God would place before the high priest and himself an altar of sacrifice? It's an ever-present and weighty reminder that a sacrifice was needed to approach the Holy God. But if you were the high priest, and you continued walking after the sacrifice, you took the blood through the veil into, eventually, the most holy place, and there before you and God stood the Ark of the Covenant. Look at 25.17. Look at 25.17. talking about the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, and he says on top of it there would be this lid. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. He's talking about the lid, the covering. And it's supposed to be the exact measurements of uh, the Ark. So in other words, it's supposed to fit perfectly on top of the thing, this beautiful thing. So imagine your eyes, when you walk through the general tavern of the, the courtyard, which sees the altar of sacrifice, that's what stands before you and God. You go into the most holy place, and what stands before you and God is the Ark of the Covenant. But you see what is really needed there. You see what the ESV calls it. It calls it a mercy seat. Also translated, an atonement cover. The Hebrew root word here refers to a concept of bringing hostile parties together. Making them at one. This is what atonement does. It brings... Two hostile people at one. It is at one-ment, atonement. It is where they find mercy. But you see what's really going on. The all-holy Lord reaching out to his wayward people. He instructs them to build a sanctuary that he might dwell among them. And what spans the gap between the holy and the unholy? 
It is the place where the blood is spilled. You see how the priests and their duties and even the tabernacle furniture were set up by God in order to answer man's problem? You see how in all the talk about the furniture and fashion, God was really revealing and reminding the people of their own greatest need, their need for forgiveness and atonement for sins. I mean, though the people were commanded to do these things, they were never forgiven just by doing them. So the question is, why do them in the first place? Why have God, why have the people construct all of these things to all the, the exact details? Well, friends, it's because God was wetting their appetite. He was readying the people for the real thing. For when King Jesus was to dwell among a people and would himself effect full and final forgiveness through the sacrifice of his own blood. In the Old Testament law, in the Old Testament tabernacle, and in the temple, God was readying his people for full, free, and final atonement through the sacrifice of Christ. In this one plan of God to save man, man's problem of sin can be dealt with. You turn over to the book of Hebrews for a moment. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. If you're sitting next to someone who might not know their way around the Bible, you can help them get there. The book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament. Look at 9.23. 9.23. Again, I'm saying that here in the Old Testament, God is wetting His people's appetite for the reality. For the time when Jesus Christ Himself would stand between the holy and the unholy as the only mediator between God and man. This is why there in 9.23, the stuff of the tabernacle is called copies of the heavenly things. Copies of... Of the heavenly things. Okay, so if you're wondering, like, what in the world does the Old Testament have to do with the New Testament and Jesus? Well, the Old Testament, they were copies. The tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly things. You look over to 10, chapter 10, verse 1. He calls it there a shadow of the good things to come. That is the good things in Jesus Christ. You know, of course, shadows are not really the real things, right? But for the people who have eyes to see, the shadows lead us to the realities. So in the Old Testament tabernacle, as God is commanding them to build all these things and to celebrate the high priest, here once again, he is laying out the shadows that might whet our appetite for the one who takes away the sins of the world, the cross of Christ. And so if anyone would dwell with God, they must come through Christ. If we are to be in a relationship with God, we need one, the one mediator between God and man, that is Christ the Savior. But in the book of Hebrews, he is far superior than any high priest. He is our great high priest who does not bring the blood of goats and bulls because those things never took away sin. He brings his very own blood. And with his shed blood, he goes to God through his own single sacrifice. And he secures an eternal redemption, as Hebrews 9.12 says, for, this, for everyone who would believe upon him. This is Christ. All of this points to Jesus Christ as God seeks to dwell amongst his people. He reaches out in his love, in his good and pure and holy love, helping us learn how to live as he has designed us to live. Through Christ, the unrighteous are counted righteous. We are justified, and the unholy then meets the Holy One. That's how the tension here is resolved. As God desires to dwell amongst his people, how can he do that? Because they are unholy. Was well, because Christ the Holy One, the God-man, 
descends and lives amongst us and dies on the cross. And perhaps you're visiting with us. You know this story. Maybe you feel too unholy to come to Christ. The answer, friend, is you need only look to the people of Scripture and to see that God in His holy love loves sinners. He delights in saving sinners. This is His holy love. It is in His very nature to save unholy and unrighteous sinful people. And in fact, He desires to. He delights to. If you notice all of this stuff in, in the tabernacle, this is all by God's initiative. How, you know, in relation to how does a just and holy God dwell amongst an unholy, sinful people without judging them immediately? Well, it's because in His wisdom, He, he exercises great prudence and wisdom and patience. And at the right time, He sends Jesus Christ. And that is by His initiative. You want to meet with God? He, he lays out the instruction. That is by on His initiative. Even the materials given were given to his people by God. They left Egypt and they plundered Egypt and with the very stuff, they used that to build the tabernacle. And most importantly, he even provides a sacrifice. Friends, I wonder if you want to be reconciled with this holy God. There is a way. And the way is to turn from your sins and be saved. Man, we are the ones who created the problem. And so we cannot create the solution. But God gives a solution in Jesus Christ. So friends, if you want to receive this love of God, this pure love of God, and to live the way that God has designed you to live, friends, repent of your sins and turn. Believe on Him and you will be saved. Now perhaps you, you are just at the beginning of exploring Christianity. You're beginning to learn about God's plan to save sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glory and man's good. Maybe you know that there is a Jesus Christ and that He died. Well, friend, have you ever investigated why Jesus came to die? Let me encourage you to, to approach me, approach a friend who, who brought you, and we have this Bible study called Christian Explained. We can go through six sessions studying the claims of Christ, who Christ is according to his own claims. Who is this man, this God-man, who came to die? Why was his sacrifice even necessary? Why did God come to dwell amongst his people? And talk to us. We'd be happy to set that up. It's a six-week Bible study examining who Christ is according to his own claims. You can talk to me about the door about that later on. Well, friends, this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is called the gospel, good news. Because God, in Jesus Christ, dwells among sinners and makes a way back to God himself to experience great fellowship that we have with him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for your initiative, for your character of what it looks like to seek out sinners, to not harbor sinful grudges, to never struggle with bitterness. But instead, we see here that you reach out to sinners and that you seek to dwell with us. We thank you for the life of Jesus Christ lived the life, the perfect life that was required of us, who died the death on the cross that we should have, and then three days later was raised from the dead. We thank you, Lord, that in his shed blood, the unholy can be declared righteous and our sins paid for. We thank you, Lord, that we can be free from this sin through Jesus Christ. 
Father, we pray that we would not take this for granted, that you are an all-loving God whose love is pure and holy and righteous. Lord, we pray that we would be amazed at your character that seeks reconciliation even with the, the worst of sinners. In your name we pray. Amen.